Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. As we are on the precipice of the playoffs, which are always very exciting for me, and the end of the regular season, I wanted to do something a little bit different for the reason that I've already done a fair amount of playoff previews. If you want to listen to the Dunked On Basketball podcast, Nate and I have done more than an hour on the East and on the West. You can hear a lot more there in terms of detailed thoughts and analysis and everything like that. So I wanted to do something that was kind of a a thought that was in my mind. And that was I talked with Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post, one of my favorite guests, great writer, about this season's biggest story to me which is the offensive explosion that we've seen. And so we talk, Tim's written about it before. I was thinking about it as I was putting together some season numbers over the week. And so we decided to have that conversation. And it was a lot of fun getting into kind of what we think caused it, where we think it's going to go. And then because I can't control myself on it, we also talked about the potential of a shorter schedule as a short topic. And then we talked about the playoffs, you know, what we're thinking about, what we're looking forward to and everything like that. And this is on the shorter side. This is only a 40 minute podcast. So what I decided to do is after the episode, I'm going to go through, you can hear me go through my playoff predictions. So what I think is going to happen, that's a little monologuing for me, but I I thought some of you might be interested in it. I get asked that a lot. So just to kind of a concise form of what I think is going to happen in the playoffs and a little clarification on on the scheduling thing, because I I thought I wanted to do that with time. So this episode is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek is my personal go-to for buying and selling tickets to concerts, sports, and just about anything else. You can download the free SeatGeek app and then enter the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, for $20 off as a rebate on your first purchase. As I said, this one's about the the meat of it's about 40 minutes. I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Always fun, Danny. How are you? I'm doing well. I don't want this to be a standard kind of like season in review, playoff preview, because both of us have spent plenty of time and internet ink on those things already. But the place I want to start is actually something that you've written about before. And I, I haven't written about it, but I've, I've thought about it a lot, which is the biggest takeaway for me from this season so far is just the offensive explosion, not only relative to the past, but relative to even last year. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's why, you know, people, there there was some internet, you know, you mentioned the internet ink. I mean, a lot of people got wound up when I, even though I don't have an official ballot this year because of my newspaper's voting policy, I picked Kawhi Leonard to win MVP, and a lot of people, you know, I, I, I think that all, all the guys are worthy candidates at the top, whether it's LeBron or Kawhi or Ross or Harden, but a lot of the people who were stridently against me saying that were rough people, and a lot of their arguments would boil down to, well, look at his averages. He's averaging a triple-double. How could you possibly vote against somebody who averaged a triple-double for a season? And it's more of a, a vote for somebody than a vote against anybody, given how great all their seasons have been, as you've broken down with Nate Duncan expertly, and, and everybody else has too. But for me, I thought the, the triple-double thing was kind of the weakest link of Russ's candidacy because, and not, not even because of the uncontested rebounds or whatever that kind of stuff you want to break down, the bigger part for me was that if you look around the NBA, offense everywhere is through the roof. So you see, you know, just overall, there's been way more triple doubles this year than there have been basically ever. And, you know, the offense, you look at the just raw offense and the defensive numbers for teams. You know, last year, the best defense of the league, I think the average, I think the Spurs allowed something like 96 or 97 points per 100 possessions. This year, it's 101. That basically four-point jump correlates to everybody in the league. 
it's really been remarkable to kind of see it as the season's gone on, to see the numbers that people are putting up and just the way these teams are scoring at such an amazing clip. It's really been a remarkable thing to see because a lot of this stuff has been built up over the past two decades from various rule changes that have been made. But it, it, it wasn't anything that any of us really expected to happen all at once like this and, and turn into this just crazy offensive explosion. A couple of stats that I, I put together for this because I had thought about doing this as a topic. The So I, I don't like looking at the top or the bottom in terms of offense or defense just because then you're dealing with extremes. Of Warriors and Rockets are a good example of that. Last sure. year, the fifth-ranked defense allowed 100.9 points per 100 possessions. This year, that fifth rank was 104.5. And that difference of three to four points per 100 is consistent at the fifth-ranked spots on offense and defense and at 15th, so league average. And considering the rules didn't change much between last year and this year, I mean, Hacka and a few other small things, that's incredible. Because it's not like the personnel changed over. It's not like there was anything crazy like that. It's just that teams are kind of embracing. You can give D'Antoni some credit for it. More D'Antoni on the Suns credit for it than D'Antoni now, though, of course, the Rockets help. But you're seeing this embracing, and I think a big part of it is that now, not only because the Warriors won, but Cleveland embraced a lot of those ideas as well, and you could argue that the Spurs had some elements too, there is definitive evidence that going with that sort of offensive style works. Yeah, you know, I think I think you look, you know, you go over the past several years, you look over the past several years from the Heat teams with LeBron to the Cavs teams with LeBron to the Dallas Mavericks winning to in 2011 to going back to the D'Antoni teams, as you mentioned, with the Suns back in the 2000s to what the Warriors have done the last few years. And teams, you know, teams have just become to more and more embrace spacing the floor and shooting more threes and, you know, kind of, you know, the, the analytical side of the sport, which, you know, can kind of show you know, on cold hard paper with, with numbers and facts that, you know, it is it is more efficient to get to the rim and shoot threes and get to the foul line. And, you know, as more and more teams embrace that kind of stuff, you know, you see that becoming more and more of a thing. I think, frankly, part of the reason that offense is up is because of the, the emphasis on calling these fouls, these, fa- these shooting fouls on guys, you know, as we know, like this pump faking, getting guys in the air and flinging yourself into them and getting a shooting foul. I mean, that doesn't seem like a big thing, but if you call – if there's an extra, say, two or three of those a game, I mean, that's four, five, six points a game that wasn't there before. Um, I'm not I'm not saying that's the, the sole, obviously, the sole reason for this, but I, I think you factor all that stuff in together along with some of the rule changes that, you know, have steadily allowed offense to, to gain hold over the last 15 years or so, and it's a combination that leads to, you know, the league scoring this year at a clip like it never has before. That's a great explanation, and another one that I've been fixated on over the last few months is something that I think I, I, it resonates more with me because I covered the series that really crystallized it, but I think back a lot to that series in 2015 when the Warriors played the Grizzlies, and after the third game in the series, they put Andrew Bogut on Tony Allen. And basically what that sort of signaled, and we've seen other examples of this in the recent past, of teams basically ignoring non-threats on offense. And what that does is it makes it harder to play those guys. I mean, the Thunder have been able to make it work with Robertson. Robertson also is getting a little bit better at contributing offensively. But what happens is if you can take a defense-only player off the floor you're going to be replacing them with a worse defender. And so that shift, it shifts the personnel not only that you play, but that you identify and that you want to try to put on your team. 
Yeah, that I mean, that's that's true. And the fact that, you know, look at that Memphis series, too. Right. They were starting Zach Randolph and Marcus all. And, you know, I still think there's a place to have two bigs like that in the league if you if they're good enough players. But you look at the preponderance of teams now, they have a, a, a combo forward there who can space the floor and shoot to three. So now, you know, you look now, there's teams have at least three or four shooters on the court. You look at guys like Rajon Rondo, right? There's a guy that 10 years ago was a elite, you know, considered to be an elite all-star level point guard by people. Now a guy like him that can't shoot the ball at the point, you know, you it's really hard to be a starting point guard if you're not a quality shooter. I mean, to me, you know, about as good as you could be as a non-shooter at that position is Ricky Rubio, who's I don't think anybody looks at Rubio and thinks he's going to be an all-star unless he becomes a, you know, a, a much better three-point shooter. And at this point, given how long he's been in the league, it'll be hard for him to do that. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's all this stuff together. You know, how exactly it crystallized this year, I'm not quite sure. It might just be, you know, just kind of the way things went. And maybe next year it'll kind of drop back to where it's been or maybe it'll stay here. I'm not sure. But it, it has been a truly remarkable thing to, to watch. And that combined with the fact that all, pretty much all these stars outside of Kevin Durant and, and Chris Paul, who both only missed a chunk of the season, uh, have been healthy this year. You know, it's really, it's really allowed for the game's best players to take advantage of it too. And it's been, it's been an awfully fun regular season to watch far more interesting, I think, than a lot of people anticipated when Kevin Durant went to the Warriors and it was thought that they were just going to obliterate everybody. And it was going to be a pretty boring year. There are those concerns a lot. I remember that, you know, at various moments in in the past where a team looked Miami, people said that. And the thing about having 30 teams playing at once is you always find other stories. And I think it also helped as much as, you know, maybe you and I were going to watch everything anyway. But I think it helped in the broad sense that so many quality people had good seasons and healthy seasons, as you mentioned, in other places. I mean, there are there are no legitimate MVP candidates unless you have Steph Curry, who I had fifth on my fake ballot. Their MVP candidates were on other teams and they were on very different types of teams. So it allowed for the kind of for the interest to disperse a little bit more instead of it all being like, oh, the Warriors, they win, you know, however many games and they have the MVP, they have the coach of the year, they have the executive of the year, all that sort of stuff. Spreading that around, not only in terms of justification, but also in terms of actual quality of play, helped make the league more accessible. Yeah, totally. There's there's more there's more things for people to play for, right? It's like it's kind of like European soccer, where you know, like in England, they have obviously they play in the Premier League, but then they have the FA Cup. You know, they have the the, the League Cup, and there's the Champions League. There's these different competitions that you know, if you're a team that say you know, say the Thunder, right? The Thunder are going to win the championship this year, but their season became about Russell Westbrook and about Russell Westbrook potentially winning MVP. And if Westbrook wins the MVP and they, you know, have a competitive series with the Rockets, even if they don't win, the fact they made the playoffs and he won MVP, people are going to look at that as a success, right? There, it, it, allow, it has allowed for other teams to find different thresholds for success, which both has more fan bases happy and has more teams you know, feeling satisfied that they, they've accomplished something this year. So it, it, it kind of works out to be the best of both worlds for everybody. And that ties in with something that I'm interested in and will definitely be focusing on, in on in this playoffs, which is what players and what schemes can effectively make another team's offense less reliable. And that gets into the, if you want to talk about the arguments for who could win defensive player of the year, if you want to talk about the best defenses in the league, everybody ratcheting up their offense has to lead to 
competitive advantages on the other end. I don't know if it's going to be on the individual perspective or from the team perspective, but there have to be some, and whoever can do that is going to benefit immensely. Yeah, I think I think from that standpoint, it's going to be the teams that can do one of two things. If you're playing a team like the Thunder, can you corral Russell Westbrook? Or the Rockets, same thing with the Rockets with James Harden. These offensive, that have one offensive fulcrum, if you have somebody that can neutralize them or at least slow them down, that's going to be a huge advantage. The other thing is, if you have enough perimeter defenders to be able to effectively combat the three-point line, that's going to be the other thing. Because with all these teams that are so reliant on three-pointers now, if you can get teams out of rhythm on the perimeter and disrupt their flow and keep them from really getting going from the outside, that's become such a huge part of these teams' offenses that say, you know, in the past, maybe you could have dumped it into the post to, you know, some guy who could get you 20 points a night, say an Al Jefferson type, just as the name it came to my head. You know, you just throw it into to a guy like Big Al and he can get you some buckets and change the game. Well, a lot of these teams don't have that anymore. Houston, for example, has no, they don't post up at all. And, you know, the Thunder, like Stephen Adams can post up, but they don't really do that ever. So, you know, a lot of these teams don't really have a plan B anymore. And if, so if you can, if you can either take away that, that offensive fulcrum or you can, you can limit what these teams are able to do from the three-point line, it's going to be a huge advantage in terms of trying to slow them down. My feeling is that switching is going to be a big part of that answer. You th- yeah, you think, no question. Yeah, you, th- no question. you think back to the idea of worst-case scenarios. And so for, with a lot of these shooting point guards in particular, you know, if you're defending a pick-and-roll, especially if it's a guy who can actually set screens, which I, I feel like at some point is going to be incentivized enough that players actually start doing it. Maybe not Kevin Durant, but other players will start doing it. <laughs> And because that yeah. actually helps the screener get open. I don't understand. I understand that it's like the, the physical contact and everything's a pain, but like the guy who might actually end up keying this, not this year, sadly, is Yusuf Nurkic. Like Nurkic gets much better looks because he sets good screens. Draymond too. And so what switching does is it prevents that, basically the quality of the screen from creating an open shot for the ball handler. And so a switch negates a lot of that. And, you know, there are ways of combating that. You can throw it back to the guy, you can get post up, you can do lots of different things. But it takes away a really good scoring opportunity. And the other reason that switching is intriguing is that it more closely aligns with the physical skill sets that you're probably looking for in the first place. Just because with the death of the kind of post-up big in starting lineups, you get more of these switchable centers, you get more of these switchable power forwards than we ever had before. Yeah, no, no question at all. I mean, it, you know, the, the like you said, the, the corollary to having more of these combo forwards on the court is you have more guys that can guard more spots, right? I mean, it's kind of, that's why the Warriors had so much success when they started to go small. It's why LeBron at the power forward spot has been such a weapon for the Cavs and the Heat. I mean, it's, it, if you have a guy at the power forward spot who can do, you know, can both space the floor and guard on the perimeter, it just gives teams so many more options. And, and you're right, it's, it's a huge factor and something that, you know, is, it's a reason why the league has continued to trend that way. And I, I have a feeling it's going to remain trending that way in the future. That's also part of the reason why I've been so intrigued. In the last couple of years, I've been getting back into the idea of watching not not in in terms of covering like small youth basketball events. I went to the Nike Hoop Summit last week and Adidas Nations last year. I'll do that again this year. The guys that are coming up, by and large, fit in with that idea. Like this is not a this is not something that is changing as as things move on. It it's also great because those styles of systems, at least to me, I'm I'm ne- I'll never be as athletic as those guys are. It seems like it's a lot more fun to play as well, which brings more people into the sport and might help keep them around. 
Yeah. I mean, look, it, everybody likes to, to bomb away from three and, and, you know, it, it naturally, if you're, if you're playing kind of a, a pace and space kind of system, which inevitably you're going to, if you're, if you're playing that way, you're going to see more offenses, you know, getting, playing at a faster pace. You're going to see teams playing faster, getting up and down the court more, more tra- that leads to more transition play, more fast break opportunities, more dunks. I mean, it, it, it kind of all builds on itself. And you're right. I, I think, you know, I, I certainly think if you, you know, part of the the story you referenced at the beginning was that if you go back to, to 20 years ago when the, when hand checking was at its height and, you know, the, with the, all the legal defense rules, it was essentially, you know, Michael Jordan, go stand on the one side of the court. We're all going to stand on the other side of the court. And you can isolate somebody and, and score. I mean, sure, that was, that was, you know, Michael Jordan was a great isolation scorer, as was guys like Kobe Bryant and Tracy McGrady and Vince Carter. Like you, there have been a lot of uh, Allen Iverson, obviously, got to the finals with a, you know, essentially a Russell Westbrook-type team with, you know, one Falcon score and then a bunch of guys who played defense and rebound and gave him the ball back. It, there's nothing against those teams, but for my money, I would much rather watch teams like the Suns under D'Antoni, just the way the Spurs have played for the last 10 or 15 years, the way the Warriors play, the way the Cavs play, the way the Rockets play. It's just a much more fun style to watch. And I do think that when you see, I mean, look, people like scoring, right? So the more offense that's in the game, not that I'm against defense, but when you have a more attractive style of play to both watch uh, and play, it's little, there's little coincidence to the fact that basketball is in a better position than it's ever been before. And, you know, is firmly, I think, established itself as the, the number two sport in America at this point. I don't really know if this ties in, though in my brain it does, but something else that the league has gotten a lot better at, and I'm not saying it's ever been bad at this, considering players like Oscar Robertson succeeded in in the past and, and Magic was bigger than a standard point guard, primary ball handler, whatever. It seems to me like the league is getting better overall at maximizing players with unusual skill sets. I, I think back to, you know, how a player like Dirk Nowitzki, you know, if he had been around 20 years before the 20 years he's been around, that, that he would have been different. Or even, you know, Carl Anthony Towns is getting the ball in his hands a little bit more. Giannis is a great example of this. And I think that part of the reason for that is now that there's so much money in the league, you don't have any excuses for not trying everything you can that gives your team the best chance to win. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, you mentioned Dirk. I mean, I think, I think that Dirk is kind of a part of this, right? I mean, Dirk really, you know, part of the reason why I think Dirk to me should get the edge over a guy like say Kobe in terms of all time rankings is because of his impact on the sport. And, you know, people, I'm sure a lot of people will hear that and say, Oh, well, Kobe, how could you, how could you say that? What about all the guys who idolized Kobe as a kid? Like, yes, that's true. But I mean, for basically all of time, uh, there have been you know shooting guards that have been excellent players, going back to guys like Jerry West and John Havlicek up through you know. You, I mean, you could call, go all the way through and find six six wing players that were dominant scorers. But to have a seven foot power forward that could shoot the three like Dirk and space the floor like that, put the ball on the floor and get to the basket from the three-point line. He just transformed the sport um, in, in ways that a lot of other people just could only dream of doing. And so I, I think that Dirk really, beyond the fact that you know he's an awesome guy, has never really gotten enough credit for, for the way he has kind of changed the game. And I, I think that as part of all this offensive talk, I think it would be a short-sighted to, to leave him out of being a, a really big factor as to why, because you've seen over the last 15 years as he's become 
a mega star in the league. How many teams have tried to tried to, to replicate Dirk by finding another guy that can do what he does? I mean, it's it's really become kind of the archetype, right? Like that's the, the he's the he's going to become kind of the all time definition of what teams are looking for in a stretch four. I've I've been thinking about him a fair amount actually because when I've been working, this might be a connection that won't make sense to some people, but I've been working on the Warriors book. I ended up on a lot of stories about how Don Nelson identified Dirk and then tried to hide him from everybody else in the draft process. He basically begged him not to work out for anybody else. I think the Mavericks had like the the eighth pick or something like that, and then eventually they made the infamous trade with with Robert Tractor Trailer. And part of why why that's so interesting and why it ties in is is going back to what we talked about with D'Antoni's sons and the Spurs and the Warriors and everything is why Dirk has this resonance is because it worked. Not only because he won a championship, but because he won an MVP and the Mavericks were, even though they lost in the first round, they were the best team in the league that year. And so what teams learned is they're like, oh yeah, this guy's unusual, you know, if, if people want to call him a unicorn for his time, he definitely was. But when something works, you try, you might not be able to do that exact same thing, but you try to do something similar and they realized that there were all these skill sets with players that just hadn't really been used before and that it, it the most important thing about Dirk for me is that it makes it easier for other people to do their jobs. Yeah, totally. And that's why you look at the Mavs and him and Carlisle, Rick Carlisle have managed to, to drag them to competency basically every year for the past several years, even though they've had kind of a ragtag uh, group around him because just because even at this point in his career, he still causes so many problems that, that, you know, with a great coach and, you know, with marginal talent, they're still able to be a competitive team year after year, even, even when they really have no business being one. Do you have an idea? I'm still working on this of kind of where this is going. Like there, eventually there'll be a stopping point in terms of diminishing marginal returns. But as we get into these skill sets and get into like more centers that this is kind of where I got to with Joel Embiid and Towns and all these guys is so it used to be this choice that, you know, if you had a center, you kind of wanted a, you know, an Al Jefferson type, maybe a Mehmet Kerr type. I don't know why I'm going back to that old jazz team, you know, like a, a Rudy Gobert type. Let's just keep going with jazz bigs. And now we're getting into this group, and I'm not saying there are ever going to be enough of them for every team, but we're getting into this conversation where there are like five or six, maybe it'll eventually be somewhere around ten, guys that you don't have to make those same choices because they can do more different, they can check more boxes than guys could before, partially because of the way they developed. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know where it's going to stop. I don't know where it's going to stop. I really don't. I mean, I, we didn't see this year coming, right? So, I mean, I think at some point, you know, uh, barring a rule change, which, I mean, uh, some of, some people like Tom Havishow would like there to be a four-point line. I don't really anticipate that ever happening. But, you know, barring barring some kind of inclusion of something like that or, uh, you know, extra points for half-court shots or, or some some kind of thing that, that could increase scoring more, I, I do think at some point you're going to get to a point where, you know, you're going to kind of maximize what, the offenses are able to do under the current rules. And then you'll start to see the defenses start to catch up a little bit. My guess is that, you know, this summer and the teams are really going to study what happened this year. And, and you'll see some, some regression back to a, to not a mean, but somewhere between last year and this year, I would guess as teams start to kind of figure out, you know, some things to combat some of this stuff. Cause you know, we both know there's a lot of people who are going to spend a lot of time, between now and, and, and next fall, you know, pouring over tape to see why did this offensive explosion come about now and, and what are we going to do to change it? And 
I, I think that that will see start of that some of that start to come about. But I really don't know where where this is going to stop because it's, as you said, there's so many more guys on the court that could do multiple things now that it's going to be harder and harder to guard guys every year. And I don't really anticipate that changing anytime soon. I don't know where it stops, but I think I know what's coming next. And it's looking at the Warriors and the Rockets, the Rockets in particular, the idea of shooting substantially past the three-point line. Yes, it's not worth a fourth point now, probably not for a long time, if ever. But there are very specific benefits to having to guard somebody two feet, three feet past the three-point line. And I think what the resonance of that is going to be is that for there's a group of players where that shot is basically impossible where they it doesn't work with the mechanics of their shot they have to shoot it in a different way they're not going to be able to do it but i think more players and nate and i actually kind of spitballed this about lebron james could shoot that at about this a similar rate to what they're doing before and that just totally changes the geometry of how much space you have to defend and opens up other possibilities and i think back a lot to the question I'm, I'm happy I asked it once, and I want to ask it to more guys in the, in the future. Hopefully you get inspired and do as well. So there's a little bit of story time. A couple years ago, actually that was last year, there was a game at Oracle where Omri Caspi and Steph Curry got into like a shooting battle. You know, the two of them, it was at the end of the first half. They were each taking like 26, 28 footers. And so after the game, I went into the, the Kings locker room because I wanted to talk to Caspi. And I asked him, where do you feel comfortable shooting? And he said, if I have my feet set and I'm past half court, I'm good. And he might have been exaggerating for effect because guys do that all the time. They want to sound super great. But I think that's closer to the truth than a lot of us uh, than a lot of us are ready to admit and that some people realize. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, you, if you watch, I mean, you know, like you said, not everybody's going to be able to do that right now. But more and more guys over time are going to be comfortable, you know, getting their feet set and putting it up from 30 feet, 35 feet. And, you know, you saw Russ at a game winner the other day, 36 feet. You see Aaron, uh, Eric, Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson, you know, kind of casually shooting from 30 feet for the Rockets. You staff obviously has got range out to basically half court. You know, over time, you're going to see more and more guys do that. And you're right. Look, the whole point of the thing about shooting threes, it's, it's as much about having the extra point for the shot as it is the benefit of having the floor space for more room to attack the basket and get to the rim, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a causation on both ends. You know, if there's more space to drive, there's more room to either score or kick it out for a three. You know, if there's more guys around the perimeter who can shoot threes, if you score, you're going to make more, get more points for the shot. So it, it works both ways. And stretching guys to be 26, 27, 28, 30 feet from the basket you know, it just further exacerbates the problem for the defense of trying to stop those guys. So uh, I definitely think you're right. I think over time you're going to see more and more guys shooting from out there and spacing the floor even more than it is now and giving defenses even bigger headaches in terms of trying to shut them down. And the other part of that argument, which is, I mean, there are a series of reasons why I don't love the four-point shot, but that's a reward enough. You know, I don't think you need to give an extra point for that. Guys are going to, eventually, they're going to realize that doing that, if they can get, let's say, 2 3% worse from there, that's worth it for the team offense. No question. The shot is already more efficient. So, you know, if the choice is to take two steps back and shoot from 28 feet or two steps in and shoot from 18, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely going to be better. And if not every instance, most of them, to take those two steps back and shoot from 28. And while most human beings probably can't shoot from 28, we're already dealing with 
you know, anomalies of anomalies. And if there's a group of people that can eventually train themselves to shoot 28, 30 footers, it's the guys who are already making it to the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like they're already the best for a reason. So, you know, if, if, if they, if, like you said, if these kids who are coming up are kind of trained to pull up and shoot from 25, 26 feet or space the floor at that point, you know, they're, they're going to grow more comfortable with doing that. And, and like little kids playing with iPads, right? Like if you just grow up, you just from birth doing something, you know, it's, it's a lot easier than trying to learn something at 30 years old. And I, I think, I think that goes with this kind of stuff we're talking about too. Yeah, that, that, I think that's a really important part of this is, is the kids that are growing up with this as an expectation. And some of it is about physical capability, but some of it is also about comfort, you know, that you get to do that. I mean, not everybody can, can have the work ethic to do, you know, do it every single day. But if, if instead of accumulating those 100,000 shots over the course of two years as you're working on it, if you can do that over the course of your 20 years before you make the NBA or 15, it's a lot easier. Yeah, it's just expectation, right? Like if you, if, if it's something you're just always used to doing, if it's like, hey, you know, I always have shot the ball from 25 feet, so what's the difference, right? As opposed to, I'm used to shooting the ball from 20 feet, and then it's go, oh man, I got to take this extra five feet back and shoot from 25 feet. How am I going to do that? I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's more of a, a mind trick as opposed to anything else. And if you could train your brain from the beginning to say, I'm supposed to do my feet then it's going to be a lot easier than having to, you know, do something a certain way for a while and then retrain your body to do something else later on. Now, Tim and I still have a few other topics we want to get into, including the playoffs, but I want to take a quick moment to tell you about SeatGeek. SeatGeek is one of the earliest sponsors of Real Jam Radio and a product that I used long before they were a sponsor on this or any of my other shows. And the reason why is because it is simply an excellent place to buy and sell tickets. That is a, a daunting endeavor still, even with the advent of the internet, finding the right place to buy your tickets is, is a challenge. And it's important because this is something that you have chosen to attend yourself or as a gift for friends or family. And SeatGeek is a great way to do it because they are an aggregator, which saves you time. So you don't have to worry about checking a bunch of different ticket sites. It can be the wild, wild west out there. And you can look in one place and feel confident that they have what you are looking for. And then the second part, which also saves you time, is something that they do called Deal Score. And so what Deal Score is attempting to do, and it does a, an amazing job of it. And for those of you who don't know, I used to buy and sell tickets to make a living. So I, I know these markets very well. What Deal Score is doing is it is trying to calibrate and combine ticket quality and ticket price to give you the best deal. And so since personal preference is involved, they can never say buy these tickets, but they can say these are the best options and then you can choose among those. So between that and aggregation, you only need to look one place and you only need to look quickly because you can look at a nice list of these are the best things that you have on the table for that number of pe for that number of people, for that kind of seating arrangement, whatever you want. And you go to SeatGeek and you get it done very quickly. Another way that I really enjoy their, our promotion with them is because the way that you do it is you download their free SeatGeek app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and then you use the promo code REALGM, like the site that employs me and Real Jam Radio is the name of this podcast. So you input Real GM under the settings tab. There's a promo code that you can put in. And what happens there is not only do you support the show by telling them that you came from us, but you get a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So you get awesome seats to a playoff NBA game or to a concert 
or to theater, whatever makes you happy. And you get $20 cheaper than you were going to get before. And you get to try out the place that is my personal go-to for buying and selling tickets. So it all comes together with SeatGeek, RealGM promo code. And now back to Tim Bontemps. I want to have a short conversation with you because uh, I, I don't recall us ever, I'm sure we have, uh, talking really about the idea of, of shortening or lengthening the season. But I think this ties in as well because you could think about the strain and everything like that. And if the league, well, the league is already trying to do certain elements of this that are making it more player friendly. They haven't gotten to the point yet where they're ready to cut revenue. But I think that's the real the real secret to making this a whole different ball game is if you could reduce the season so not only so there are no back to backs but reduce the season so that you could you know that that the workload is a little bit more reasonable you could even see the best of the best play a higher proportion of each game. Yeah, I this is never going to happen. I love my friends like Tom Abistrow and Kevin Artovitz and the many the many many Ethan Strauss the the many. The many friends that I have, you obviously, who would like to see the season shortened. I'm not even arguing the merits of whether the season should be shortened or not, because it doesn't matter. The league, you said at the beginning, the league is not going to take less money. The players are not going to take less money. And while, you know, our friend Ethan, Ethan Strauss, loves to argue that, well, potentially the NBA could take an NFL type approach and have 50 games or 30 games or 15 games or whatever, and having more scarcity would lead to more money. And he may be right. The, the, the truth is that networks like ESPN and TNT are currently paying the NBA. So we'll be paying the NBA between two and a half and three and a half billion dollars over the next nine years. And the reason why is because of inventory and the local TV, uh, the local TV deals, which even for crappy teams are $50, $60 million a year, are because of inventory. And having dates during the wintertime where they put on basketball and people in an era where everybody's trying to watch stuff on demand or, you know, on Netflix or on Hulu, now people will go watch sports live. It's the one thing people still watch live or live. So I agree with you. There are potentials for a lot of different things that could happen if the league shortened the schedule. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think things like shortening the preseason is good. I think the league should shorten it even further, but they probably won't because they want to still be able to have their stupid trips overseas. And also, like, think about what we're about to start, right? The Warriors are playing their first four games of the playoffs in a, like a 12- or 13-day span, which is completely insane. And they should, they should be able to just do them every other day. I understand why the league wants to have as many eyeballs on the first round as possible, so they stretch it out over three weeks. But you could, you could easily cut a week out of there and a week out of the preseason, and all of a sudden now you're down to maybe three back-to-backs per team. And basically all the problems that we have now in terms of you know guys sitting and stuff are basically gone. So I, I understand where you're coming from, but just from a, a realistic standpoint, I just don't see – a scenario where the schedule's ever getting shortened from 82 games to anything substantially less. I agree with you on the practicality and the realism of it with one caveat that I am just fascinated by, and I don't know if this research has already been done or anything like that. So the national TV deal is a massive part of the league's revenue, and I don't think they're ever going to do anything to affect that golden goose. I, I agree with you, and I, I am openly dubious of the idea 
of going after the NFL model because I think part of the reason that works is because it's football. Football is a very different thing in the United States than anything else. And I don't think, you know, just like you and, don't want to... football, football, right. And football to me, not, not to cut you off, foot, football to me is a fundamentally different animal because of fantasy football and gambling in general. Right. But it's just, it's an incredibly easy sport to gamble on. And that, honestly, I believe more than the actual product on the, on the field is why the NFL has been the most popular sport. And I, I don't, I, I really don't think that, you know, for, for as much as I love basketball, it's a, it's a much harder sport to bet on. It's not as cut and dry as, as football is. So I, I just think that's going to be difficult, personally. I totally understand that perspective and agree with you on on the gambling part of the whole equation. What I'm intrigued by is the idea of kind of fulfilling both boxes at once, which would be not affecting the national deal at all and somehow, you know, probably reducing the local ones a little bit. But I think that the economics of that need to be studied because that might be more palatable if it's if it's a less of a sacrifice than some of us might be thinking. I legitimately, you know, I don't know. If it's if it's a smaller sacrifice, that might underscore might be possible. It might be, but you got to remember, like I said, these these local TV deals bring in a ton of money too. They do. I mean, and so do, and so does just like gate the, revenue. Like, you know? Yes. And I mean, look at the Nets, right? The Nets are who wants to watch the Nets, right? Their their rights are like fifty million dollars a year. I mean, that's you know, it's a couple million dollars for every team when you start putting it all together. You look at you know the Lakers are getting hundreds of million dollars a year. I mean, it you know the, the Warriors are getting a ton. Of, like they're it, it's a lot of money. And so you know, yes, you can do a lot of economic game theory, like like I said, our friend Ethan likes to do, and and say how uh, say how you know this could this could turn into this or this could turn into that. But to me, at the end of the day, it's just it's hard to look at the economics of it and say like that a league that is so hell bent on making every cent it can is going to say, we're going to take this theoretical leap that if we cut games, we're going to make more money because well, yeah, I, I just they're think, not going to make more if money. If you look it, at everything they've done, they're not going to do that. Yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. They're not going to make more money. It's just, can they, can they make a palatable amount less? And I'm not sure of that. I, I agree with you on, on this. Well, there, that's oh. the thing. There is, that's the thing. There is no palatable. So yes. <laughs> Like that's the that's the problem. Like in a utilitarian world, that would be an ideal outcome. But the one thing you could say about Adam Silver, since he has become the commissioner of the NBA, is that they have done everything they can to maximize revenue in every sector. Right? They're going into e games. They're going into they're for legalizing gambling. They're for you know they're they're for a lot of things. They're all the all the stuff they've on the the digital side. I mean they're they're doing everything they can to maximize their revenue. So I just don't see any scenario where they're going to they're going to cut anything and 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 endanger losing any of that at all. Well, except for having a good league pass product. Uh, don't yeah, don't even get me started on that. Well, hell, they're getting people to pay 200 bucks a year to 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 have a crappy one. So That's true. You know, I guess from that same standpoint, why spend money why spend money to fix it, right? Well, I, I know you have <laughs> in to in a get, very pathetic in a very pathetic yeah. stance. I know you have to get running quickly, but I wanted to ask you just like for some quick broad thoughts on what you're looking forward to in the playoffs. I think these playoffs are gonna be fascinating. Let's just start in the first round. Clippers Jazz. One of the most fascinating first round series in a long time. Clippers have three guys, key guys, J.J. Redick, Blake Griffin, Chris Paul, all who could potentially leave as free agents. They've had this crazy few years where, you know, they, they keep getting to the second round and falling apart. And, you know, now they have the Warriors, a team they've lost 10 in a row to on deck. You know, can they get there again, maybe give the Warriors a better series? 
if they lose to the Jazz, does that change how guys like Chris and Blake feel? You know, does it does it further push Redick out the door? I think he's likely going to leave. Look at the Jazz, right? They've spent five years building this team, and now Gordon Hayward is going to be a free agent. Could Gordon Hayward leave? I mean, I see what guys like Giannis Antetokounmpo can do in the playoffs, and you know, we'll see what happens with that. But to me, it really starts getting string in the second round. Uh, the Eastern Conference, I think, is, has the potential to have the best second and third rounds it's had in a long time. Toronto, I think, is the team best equipped to battle Cleveland. Can Cleveland get its defense right and, and give them a give them a push in the second round? Can whoever those teams play in the conference finals be better? And in the West, you know. Clippers Warriors would be a nice bow on things after the way the few years have gone. Spurs Rockets, I think, would be fascinating. And, you know, again, it, to me, it's just more of a, a, a conversation of can anybody give Golden State a run in the Western Conference uh, as opposed to it being more of a cakewalk, which I think, you know, in the grand scheme, I know you and Nate were talking, is, uh, is there an over-under of five games for them to lose? I, I think that's probably a good over-under. I think Nate might have said it at four and a half. I, I would tend to agree. I, I think that, you know, to me, in the Western Conference, the story is just going to be, you know, how dominant is Golden State going to be? Because I, I just can't really see, assuming they stay healthy, anybody really being able to hang with them. I could see a lot of teams taking a game or two from them, but getting beyond that, it could take something like what happened last year, which is certainly possible. I mean, we know part of the beauty of the NBA is that it is predictable, but not entirely predictable. And so I'm looking forward to a lot of things. You hit on you hit on the, the kind of the offseason preview. And another short, broad point I want to make is, will the Raptors get the reward and the incentive for being a buyer at the trade deadline? Because I would love to see that. Oh, work I out. know. I would love for it too. I would love for it too. I think that would be, I think that would be a great thing. Like they, they went out and they, and they swung, right? They said, we've got this team. We are Kyle Lowry's going to be a free agent. We gave Cleveland a run. Cleveland looks kind of vulnerable. Let's do it. Let's get Serge Ibaka. Let's get, uh, let's get PJ Tucker. Let's go get these guys and see what we can do. And I, I, I'm with you. I would love to see them get rewarded for that. And if not beat Cleveland, at least that have that be a, a classic seven game series. I think that would be, I really think that would be an awesome thing for the league if, if that, if it worked out that way. Right. I totally agree with you. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you go. I know you have a lot of things on your plate and you know, we're recording this on Friday. The playoffs start tomorrow. I could not be more excited. Me too, man. I, I'm, it's, it's always great to catch up with you, obviously. And it's going to be a really fun couple months. There's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that, that's going to be fun to watch. It, you know, I think the league, you know, I think Golden State is, is far ahead of everybody, but I think everybody else is pretty pretty well bunched together, like you guys were talking about on the podcast, I think, last night. You know, it, it is a pretty compact league now, and I think I think we could get some surprises. I think, I think we're going to get some fascinating play, and it, it should be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, and I think the second round and beyond is where the fun is, is really going to be. Like, I think we'll see, we'll see some interesting stuff early, but that second and third rounds is, is going to be awesome. Yeah, it should be should be should be really really great, really great. So I'm I'm looking uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, thanks again for taking the time. Anytime, man. Happy to come on. Thanks to Tim Bontemps for taking the time. You can of course read him at the Washington Post, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. That's T I M B O N T E M P S. And as promised, I wanted to take a little bit of time to run through my playoff predictions since I felt I feel a little bad this one is shorter than I usually make Real Jam Radio episodes. And so, you know, have him here. If you want to hear more of my real thoughts on all of this kind of stuff, you can listen to Dunked On. Nate Duncan and I did a separate podcast for both the Eastern and Western Conference. Those came out on, I think, Wednesday night and Thursday night. So those have had a little bit of time to gestate. And 
I'll just start at the top of the West because that's the order they're in on my sheet. I think Warriors Blazers will go to the Warriors in five. We still don't know the exact timeline, or at least I don't know the exact timeline with Yusuf Nurkic, but I think Portland has the offensive firepower to win at least one game. Spurs Grizzlies, I predicted Spurs in five then, didn't know about Tony Allen. I'm going to stick with that, though I think four is more likely than it was before. Memphis still has more than enough talent to win at least one game in this series, and off the top of my head, I don't feel like San Antonio sweeps that much. I could be horribly, horribly wrong in that, but that's my memory. Rockets Thunder is my second most interesting series, probably overall, definitely second most interesting in the West. I think that Houston has more answers than Oklahoma City does, but I could easily see this going the other way. My current prediction, my my prediction is Houston in six, Clippers Jazz is my most anticipated series of the entire first round. Two teams that succeed in somewhat similar ways, but are at different phases in their process, except that both have so much uncertainty, which is something that Tim brought up in our conversation and something that I'm very excited about in terms of where this is all going. If I were confident that Utah was 100% full strength and was going to stay that way, and that's crazy to say considering the Clippers seem like they're always snake bit, I would I would lean a little bit stronger the other direction, but I am going Clippers in six. My most anticipated series, I am totally open with the possibility being wrong, but I think the Clippers at this moment are are slightly better, but I would love to see this go seven. I'd be fine with either team winning. I think it's a lot of fun. Then going to the top of the East, Celtics Bulls. I don't love where the Celtics are right now, though I do think I'm a little unnecessarily harsh on them considering some of their highest profile losses recently happened to have been in games I watched, but I'm openly dubious about how they're going to succeed offensively and defensively now that they, you know, that they, they got better when they got everybody healthy, but they're facing the Bulls. I don't have that much faith in the Bulls to, to really piece this together. They are closer now in some ways to, to getting it right just because Miritich is playing better and, you know, they have depth and Wade and they can ratchet up the minutes for Jimmy Butler even more than they have, but I don't believe in them enough to do this. Celtics and six. Cavs Pacers, a much tougher matchup for Cleveland than I think they wanted in the first round. Getting the f- number one seed would have helped them a lot. I still have the Cavs in six just because I think the Pacers do not have the firepower for shootout games it doesn't, it, it seems to me like when it gets in that mode, Cleveland's going to be the heavy favorite. They have so much talent. And while he's not going to miss time with it, I'm a little worried about Jeff Teague's ankle as well until I see it proven. I, I'm considering that as a small factor in it. Raptors Bucks is definitely my most anticipated Eastern Conference series. Toronto is in the process of putting it all together. Their defense after the deadline was great. They did have a lot of good talent there. PJ Tucker, Serge Ibaka, and I don't know what they're going to do with their swingman rotation, but I'm excited to see it. Milwaukee has had some really nice games recently. They're also some somewhat inconsistent. I'm going Raptors in six there. It's another one where I'm not super comfortable with my pick, but I think Toronto's the better team. Not particularly worried about the home court there. And then the last series is maybe underrated in terms of its potential value. It is the least interesting to me of the four Eastern Conference, probably only ahead of Spurs, Grizzlies overall, especially now with Tony Allen being out. But Atlanta's defense is worth respecting, and I think that that is their best shot moving forward, Is the, at, at moving forward, is really seeing Millsap and Dwight Howard put a, a clamp down on some of the stuff that 
Washington does so well. Intrigued to see whether that works against the wall Gortat pick and roll, which could be a foundational piece in this series, and to see how a different group of Atlanta perimeter players handles Washington, who plays three capable offensive players in John Wall, Bradley Beal, Otto Porter. So I'm intrigued by that series. I'm going Wizards in six. I just trust their offense and defense combination better. I don't trust Atlanta's offense for the most part. I think that they can they can put it together if they need to, but if I have to say what the most likely outcome is for me, it's it's Wizards and Six. That really is kind of where I'm where I am on all this stuff right now. There of course will be a real GM radio next week, even though the first round won't even be close to done. I mean, the slow schedule for some of these series is a little bit frustrating, but I'll do a podcast presumably on just kind of where things are at the moment. I don't know exactly who it's gonna be with yet, but that will be something That'll come down the pike at some point when it's convenient. For those of you who are watching these games live, you can definitely check out the Twitter NBA show second screen. Nate Duncan and I are going to be doing it for a lot of games. We're really going to push hard in these playoffs to see if we can build a following. And if you want to check it out, Nate's Periscope is where it happens. Nate Duncan NBA. And we'll be, you know, it's like watching the game live with us. We're going to be giving our riffs and our, our input and everything like that. And I hope I hope you really enjoy it. And if you do, like with everything, and this includes podcasts, spread the word. I mean, this, it's a it's a new project for us. It's something we've been working on this year, especially the second screen part more recently than that. But we enjoy doing it and we, we think that it can speak to a different audience and do it in a in a unique way, at least unique for now. And if you want to support this show or really any others, it's basically the same process for just about everybody. Leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can also subscribe, download every episode. Those things really do help. And in any case, especially this one, if you want to check out our sponsors, this episode, it is SeatGeek, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and it's my great place to buy and sell tickets, the one I use personally and have since long before they were a sponsor. And if you use the promo code REALGM, which you enter on their mobile app under the settings tab, not only does that tell them that you came from us, but it gives you a $20 rebate on your first purchase, which is pretty awesome. Helps out everybody. And if you want to leave any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent on Real Jam Radio, NBA at gmail.com at Larue on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.